Welcome to the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. Welcome to episode 17 of the Full Disc Aviation Podcast, the podcast for all things aviation and aviation photography. A few months ago in June, Full Disc had the opportunity to sit down and chat with an F5 driver alongside our good friend Mike Henry. We're stoked to share our conversation with you all. By the way, we're also excited to share that this week's episode of the Full Disc Aviation Podcast is sponsored by Carrier Landing HD. Carrier Landing HD is an IOS flight simulator which puts you in the cockpit of a few of your favorite military aircraft, including the F-35, the F-18C, A-7 Corsair, and the mighty F-14 Tomcat. The F-22 and the Chinese J-15A Flying Shark are also available. What's great about the gameplay is you have so many options. You can make it a fun and easy cruise, shooting down drones on a clear day with the game letting you know where the aircraft and carrier are located, or you can make it super complicated and realistic, especially with the upgrade to the F-A-18C where you have the Sidewinder Sparrow and the AIM-120 options to choose from, which require you to use the fire control radar and set your scan in order to get the Sparrow to hit anything. Uh, you could further challenge yourself with night flying and landings, crosswinds, drone swarms, and aerial refueling from a buddy tanker as well. The cockpits and HUDs are very realistic, as is the aircraft handling, which changes based on your loadout and the weather situations, both of which you can update. Landings are graded and points are given, whether it's at the carrier or the naval air station, as are tanker plugs, which is something I know Mike has been working on. My skills aren't close enough to even try that yet, but... Unfortunately for you Android users, Carrier Landing HD is an iPhone, iPad game only at the moment and is available in the App Store. Keep an eye out for some pretty big upgrades on the horizon. So thanks to those guys, again, for their support of the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. And once again, check out Carrier Landing HD in the App Store. So without any more delay, let's check out the interview. Welcome to another episode of the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. I'm Nick Pascarella here with my buddy Mike Henry. How you doing, dude? I'm doing good, man. Good to be here. Fantastic. Uh, we got a special guest here today, Brad Holeski, uh, F5 driver, and I believe you have some other steeds that you've uh, put some time in behind the stick, but um, would you mind uh, just telling us a little bit about where you came up from and how you got into this aviation thing? Thank you for joining us, by the way. I appreciate it. No problem, Nick. Uh, hey, Mike. Um, yep, so I, I flew the F-18 prior to uh, the F-5. That was the uh, F-18F Super Hornet. Um, in training commands, they kind of bring you up to, to basically be single-seat minded. And then, you kind of, at least at that time, you branched off into two-seat um, or you stay with the Legacy Hornet. Uh, kind of after you figure out whether you're going to go tail hook, tail hook being anything flying off the ship. And then that um, either jets or uh, prop planes off of the ship. So I got jets. And then even further beyond that, you go through. Uh, whether you're at that time going to be prowlers um, or uh, or hornets at that point. Uh, but in any case, I grew up in Ohio. Um, I went through school and uh, didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I liked going to air shows kid, and I uh, used to go stand out in the rain waiting for the Blue Angels to fly uh, <laughs> with a bomb under an umbrella, that kind of deal. Yeah. Um, so not, not super gung-ho about... Um, Military, really, I didn't really have anybody in my family that had really done it except for a step uncle. Okay. Uh, and one cousin uh, that was in the Army. The uncle was in the Air Force and it wasn't you know, even aviation related. Um, 
So went through school and uh, thought I wanted to go to medical school, uh, kind of just knew I was good with my hands, kind of wanted to do biology type stuff, um, maybe Interesting. try surgery or something like that. But when it finally came down to it, um, my senior year, I was just like, I don't have 100% this is really what I want to do, and I don't want to go $250,000 or whatever medical school and residency might be uh, to do that. So the only other thing that I thought might be cool would be to fly. And so I uh, kind of got some private pilot lessons and uh, just to make sure that I could enjoy it and or handle whatever flying and aviation kind of had in store there. Um, got my private pilot's license. and was like, okay, I think I want to do this. I uh, initially tried talking to the Air Force, um, but at that time, I guess they were doing what they like to call a force shaping, where they're not really taking anybody. They're kind of only taking people out of yeah, the academy, the Air Force Academy, or um, or prior accepted people or maybe prior enlisted people trying to go um, officer. So they, they would end up making appointments with me to go uh, talk about um, basically the recruiter trying to make appointments with me, but he would just never show up. So that huh. two uh, two iterations of that, what? and uh, I kind of had a family friend that was either a colonel or a sim instructor in the Air Force, like prior Air Force, um, teaching C-17 guys in South Carolina. But he must have been on deployment or something because he wasn't getting back to me either. And I gave up on the whole Air Force thing and uh, called the Navy recruiter. And then after that, it got off um, really quick and OCS in early 2009. And uh, and then was kind of just off to the races after that. That's awesome. When you first got in an airplane, what, did flying come naturally to you? Like, did it feel comfortable? Something you, you know, really felt easy doing, or was it kind of a struggle? Um, I think it was difficult, only because when you start out in Cessnas or something small like that, it's it's expensive, but it's it's the first way that you kind of get your feet wet flying something, and you're kind of just a leaf on the wind. And so I wasn't, you can't really simulate having that kind of um, buoyant feeling or uh, kind of, um, I don't know if you guys have, have ever parasailed before, but uh, you just you kind of feel like a, almost a dropping sensation because you're just, you're all over the place with thermals. And so initially I didn't really like it and I didn't think it was uh, that fun um, initially. So it's, <laughs> I don't know what you want when you're like, oh, let's do this with your career. Let's see how awesome this is. But um, I wouldn't say it came easily, but I've always been kind of good with hand-eye coordination type stuff. And uh, I used to play Falcon 3.0 and 4.0 after that on computer <laughs> for a long time before I knew what the heck I was doing at all. So I kind of had at least a little bit of background in uh, you know, flight instruments and maintaining straight and level flight and turns and that kind of stuff. Cool, man. Oh, we were talking about earlier. Might as well uh, talk a little bit about it now. Your uh, Instagram going all the way back to current day now. Uh, short stories of a shutter. If you guys don't uh, don't follow him already, you should definitely check it out. Incredible stuff. But um, you want to talk a little bit about that and um, and especially Fighter Fact Friday and how you uh, how you've kind of opened to engage this audience on your platform right now. Uh, you bet. So. I've always kind of liked photography, but never really got into it until about six or seven years ago. Um, started with a little point and shoot Canon. Um, I kind of just took with you, took with me everywhere. Not really in the military kind of a deal. I just kind of had it and was like, what can I do with this as a hobby? Um, started looking into how I could upgrade from this little 
point and shoot can into like what would be the next logical step after that and kind of a smaller Sony camera. I did some research, Canon, Nikon are the big brands there, but it was kind of up and coming as far as any um, to that market. And I, I didn't know if I wanted to do video with it or just photos or both. And Canon and Nikon pretty much focus on photography only, which is fine because they're good at that. So they don't have a need to try and broad that way. Um, and Sony was trying to be more than a necessary one trip pony and kind of had the video and the photography side of things. So, so I went that route. I haven't really done much photography or um, videography with Sony cameras, but I've had three or four cameras now um, with Sony and I really like it. So it kind of just grew into uh, what can I do with these cameras and rather than just taking photos and storing them on a computer because everything's digital now, how can I share that some in some way creatively um, as a different outlet from stuff, you know, normal day-to-day -day life stuff. So initially I just had short stories of a shutter just to, I don't know, just like everyone else has an Instagram or any kind of social media. just to do something. And, uh, and then eventually I decided let's try to put something out that um, I would either be proud of or that I could share with other people that might be interested in that type of thing. And then eventually I was like, well, everyone can take photos. Even if you know, you've got a cell phone, everyone's got a camera on it. Um, so even if I'm taking photos with a really nice camera, with a really nice lens, like you can take a really good photo on your iPhone and look at it on your phone and can't tell whether it's an iPhone photo necessarily. <laughs> uh, $3,000 Sony camera. So <laughs> that is true. Part in that, you know, in the aviation world with, um, with doing that. So I, I knew growing up that I, the internet really wasn't a, a real big thing other than like AOL and, uh, ask Jeeves and that kind of stuff. So there wasn't really a forum to <laughs> talk to people about the military. I didn't have anybody in my family that had been in, so I didn't have a, a way to ask questions about aviation. It was kind of all shot. So I figured, uh, why not try to do something that's kind of a Q&A that either people thinking about aviation, uh, either military or otherwise, um, or just interested in aviation could ask questions and I could either um, skirt the topic if it kind of got into classification levels that I didn't want to get into. You know, anyone can ask questions on the internet. You don't know who's asking. Right. Right. At the same time, you still want to help people and kind of give them a sense of, of what it's about. And um, even some of the not so glamorous sides side of uh, military and aviation specifically. So, so kind of just went into that direction and try to provide a forum for people to ask questions and uh, in a less, kind of obtrusive way because I remember going to air shows, my mom would be like, Hey, why don't you go talk to the pilot? Like, go ask him questions. I'm like, no, no, you know, too shy. Because <laughs> <laughs> what do I know about this? And like, why do they want to listen to me? I'm just the 50th person that's come up to him to ask, how fast does this thing go? And how many missiles do you shoot? And stuff like that. So uh so this is kind of an easier way to for someone just to basically text me and then have me um answer their question honestly because it doesn't so that's really cool uh i'm sure i echo a lot of people when i say i really appreciate you doing that because it gives us a side of something that you know i'll never get to see uh, especially something like that i've only seen an f5 uh once coming and popping out of the fog and landing at nellis without making a radio call but uh mike you have a love affair with this f5 you want to talk a little bit about uh like your history with this uh with this airplane? Oh, it's just an airplane that I love. It just looks so cool. And even, like, before Top Gun, like, going back to being a kid when you draw jets, 
you know, that's the jet you drew. You just, you know, you didn't know what it was. It's just, that's what a jet's supposed to look like. That's what I love about the F5. It's just got like a really cool, sinister look. Um, Obviously, it's got some um, Hollywood history there with um, it being another aircraft in a movie. Right. Um, (laughs) But, you know, when you go, when you get deeper into it, you know, the performance of the jet for what it is, considering how old it is, is it's still remarkable. It's still in service, um, you know, as a. You know, you don't want to call it a frontline fighter for somebody, but and for some countries, that's exactly what it still is. And yeah. with the capabilities that they're doing with the the AT upgrade as well, it's pretty neat. But it's just a it's a timeless design. I mean, the guy that designed that also designed the P fifty one. He also designed the F eighty six and the F one hundred. That is super just, cool. You know, good solid engineering, and it looks so cool. <laughs> What is the uh, what is the performance like? If you wouldn't mind comparing it to, uh, you said you flew the Legacy Hornet, and um, I, I guess but the Super Hornet as well. I just flew the Super Hornet, just, just the, the Echo Super. and Foxtrot models. Right. Um, they kind of early on, once you knew you were getting Hornets uh, or at least Jets, I think maybe Hornets specifically, they they either kept you on the Legacy Hornet side or the um, or put you on the Super Hornet side, and then you just only flew those in the rag after that mm-hmm. um it's so I, I describe it as um a faster miata so it's it's <laughs> small um it's not very powerful the engines aren't very powerful um Fallon is is at four thousand feet msl uh on the ground so your your rollout and your takeoff roller are a lot longer than the super hornet um so the rotation speed's higher so there's a lot of factors as far as taking off and landing. There's a little bit more performance of it. It's, it's, uh, it's actually to the Super A lot of times in the, well, mainly the, the main technique to do any kind of maneuvering with the Super Hornet, um, if you're trying to be snappy with it, is you would unload the aircraft. So you're, you're decreasing the amount of drag on the, uh, on the wings by pushing the stick forward to they call it cleaning up the wings. And then you would start your roll. In the F5, you don't need to do that. It's it's just snappy. You just the wings are small and the horizontal stabilizers are small, but um, but it's a small airplane, so you don't need much to get it to move. So roll rate's a lot better than the Super Hornet, in my opinion. Um, since I haven't flown the Legacy F18, I, I can't speak to that, but I, I know guys that have, and they say it's similar. Um, the rudder authority is, is pretty good. You can actually do a snappy roll by using the rudder um obviously hmm. that's airspeed dependent and hmm. there's uh some problems there that you could cause if you were actually physically just trying to do that you, you do see that in your fam flights um, so they can show you how the rudder actually works um wow. so it's it's kind of one of those things like the f-18 has a lot of power and so if you screw something up you can almost power your way out of it um, especially when you're in, at lower altitudes, if you were fighting somebody. But with the F5, uh, it's it's a delicate balance between knowing when you need to max perform the aircraft and and or knowing that you need to keep airspeed on the aircraft and not use as much G because you're not going to get it back. So uh, it's less forgiving that way. So you have to you have to know what you're doing more than you do in an F18. Um, and this is just if we're talking slappers only, uh, i.e., like just just using gun shots because if the F-18 has any kind of missiles and you're fighting, you're going to lose an F-5 every time as long as you, um, and then not to mention the F-5's radar is, is crap. At least the one that we have in the Navy. 
So uh, if, if you start adding all those other modern equipment into it, it kind of changes the scope of things. But um, as far as afterburner goes, when you go into afterburner F18, you feel it. There's a good kick. The F5, um, you feel a kick, but it's it's more like a tap, not a kick. <laughs> um, so it's not nearly as exciting, uh, but but it can get pretty cool. Well, that's cool. Does it lose energy quickly when you're turning? Um, it kind of depends on what you're doing, but um, mm. but yes, uh, most most jets will lose energy pretty quickly if you're if you're trying to maneuver really well. Like max perform is is how it's right. System. But um, getting the energy back is the is the real F five problem because the engines just aren't aren't what they should be or, or could be really. Um, had had the F twenty been a thing. Uh, that would have been something, especially if there were two F-20 engines in there instead of just even that single F-20 engine would have been night and day from what I'm calling. Interesting. Um, you had mentioned uh, recently in a post a while back that uh, you like to remain in ground effect on takeoff to get safer climb out speeds in the event of like an engine failure. Um, does the nose want to come up on you as you get faster? Or do you have to push a stick forward to kind of keep it? Like closer to the ground, and how delicate is that balance between you know nosing over and like pulling back, pulling back into a climb? Excuse me. So, so with any airplane, as you accelerate, the the aircraft is going to want to climb away from the ground, um, just mm-hmm. because your uh, basically the your trim settings for takeoff allow the nose to kind of want to come off the runway. Um, so, as you get faster and as you accelerate, the nose will will want to climb up. So you'll have to add forward um, trim to keep the nose down and or slight forward stick, mainly trim though. And okay. so that's, that's kind of what you would do in order to not necessarily forward trim. You just ease on the stick a little bit, uh, ease forward on the stick as, as you're climbing off the ground there just to stay in ground effect. So it just helps you accelerate to a faster speed um, or more safe climb away speed. If you were to hit a bird or lose an engine, especially when it's hot outside. Um, you'll see Air Force guys do that a lot, but that's because it looks cool. They don't necessarily need to do that. Um, whereas in the, in the in RF-5, we do it for, for those reasons. Um, theoretically, we don't necessarily need to do that, but you will get to a faster uh, climb, climb out speed if you do it that way, especially when we're flying in Fallon, um, higher altitude. You're basically taking off of a small hill or mountain um, when you're in Fallon because it's high desert. So. And, the, and there are, it is farm country, but there are enough houses off the department of the runway. We always make a, we're taking off to the north. It goes a right hand um, of about 30 degrees or so. And so theoretically, if we were at a faster speed, we might be able to, to point the airplane at um, fields instead of houses uh, if, if we didn't otherwise. That makes sense. Um, I'm looking over these questions here. The uh, There are two different types that you fly. Uh both with the Navy and then with the um, uh, attack air, right? Yep. Uh, what are the differences between those two airframes? So the, um, the tactical air support F5, um, they're calling it the F5AT for Advanced Tiger. Um, it's, it's just an F5E um, that's been modified with a new avionics upgrade. The engines aren't, are, are basically the same. Uh, everything else is basically the same. There's a couple internal things like anti-skid that aren't that isn't in the initial f5e um there's a basically a leading edge uh extension or lex the f5e that is smaller than is on the navy f5n 
Um, so they did some minor modifications, which help with slow speed maneuvering and decreasing uh, the threshold for stalling uh, while you're maneuvering at slower speeds, as well as the uh, the nose of the aircraft is more of a duckbill, kind of flat, flattened nose in the Navy version. And the F5AT is, is just the standard F5E nose. Uh, it's more conical in shape. So that, that also helps with slow speed maneuvering and statistics hmm. there. So mainly the F5AT is a um, an older F5N, or basically an older Navy aircraft that we've um, kind of gutted all the old steam gauge stuff out of there and put in Garmin touchscreens and uh, basically LCD kind of avionics stuff. Remove the lead computed optical sighting system or LCOS that's in the F5 uh, for the Navy and um, added the ability to use a Scorpion Thal or Thalus Scorpion helmet. So you have a heads up display always in your, in your right eye. It's a single monocle over your right eye um, that you can kind of adjust as you know, as you need to, to, to see the, the information a little bit better, more sharp. Um, so it's, it's weird cause it's, it could be really, really good. Um, but there's just too many things that, that need to be upgraded. Like if you took the Navy aircraft and then combined it with the tactical air support aircraft, it would be pretty nice. Uh, there's also a radar in the F5 AT for tech, uh, tech air that, uh, is kind of a work in progress at the moment. Um, but is, uh, substantially more capable than the, the Navy's F5 radar at the moment. So a lot of those things that are going that are in the tactical air support jets are going to eventually get into the Navy jet. The Navy's kind of handshake agreement with tactical air support is to kind of help do the, the groundwork and the legwork for that, and then communicate, you know, the goods and others and what needs to be added or removed. Go into the Navy block. Is there much of a difference uh, fighting the two of them? So with tactical air support, we haven't done any dedicated. Um, BFM or basic fighter maneuvers flights. So okay. I, I can't exactly speak to that. I can just speak to sure. uh, that it feels just a little bit different. Um, and I don't know, these were originally Jordanian F5s for the most part that TAC Air has. Um, the Navy jets were all Swiss um, and had more hours on them when they got them. Like right now, I think the fives in the Navy have around 6,000 hours and the um, TAC Air F5s have, have less probably about half or so. So it could be that just the engines aren't as crusty as the as the Navy ones, so maybe they perform <laughs> just a little bit, but like the structure of the aircraft is just slightly different. So there's just too many different factors to really know, um, on top of the fact that I haven't exactly tried to, to fight anybody yet. So also, uh, I'll add in there, the, the F5E uses maneuver flaps um, rather than the Navy's F5N, which has uh, auto flaps, which will, depending on airspeed and, and AOA, will kind of program themselves as they need to, to, to assist in providing lift. Um, and you could go into the book and figure out what those airspeed and, uh, and know when the flaps are going to be at certain settings in the, in the Navy jet, whereas in the uh, F5AT, the maneuver flaps I'm just less familiar with because I didn't grow up flying that um, for the last five years like I did in the Navy. So um, I'd never had to fly an F5E in the Navy. They they did for a while before they upgraded them to the F5N, but uh, I just don't have all the background knowledge on what exactly maneuver flaps are. It's just, it's more of a fixed setting. I think there's three fixed settings as opposed to 
the auto flaps having kind of in-between positions that, that they might go to automatically. Now, when you go between, because obviously you're still flying with VFC-13 um, and TAC, TAC Air, when you go from one aircraft, like if you're flying one for a few days, then go to the other, is there like an adjustment period or just just the F5N just like home for you? Um, so I'd say it's that's a good a way of saying it is, is if it feels comfortable um, the Navy jet. It's just there's so much less to worry about that you can kind of just get in the airplane. All you have to do is worry about is really just turning it on. There's really only one system, which is like a GPS, INS alignment type deal. And it's mainly automatic once you get it going. And then beyond that, you're just choosing a couple of waypoints and that's it. Um, so you can almost turn your brain off and just start playing basically taxi 10 minutes or so with the, uh, with the other jet. Um, also I'll, I'll add with the Navy, the Navy just added, um, finally added Martin Baker, um, zero, zero ejection seats. So the, the habit patterns that I had with the old, the old seat that they had, the tactical jet, um, which is a couple pins that you remove, uh, basically one pin for the seat, but, um, for the Navy jet with the Martin Baker seat, really nice to have that capability of zero knowing that. I could just be sitting here. I see an aircraft that's crossing the hold short that shouldn't, or you know, um, short final, and, and I, I was told to cross the runway to the outboard runway, and I didn't see him and didn't look because I'm an idiot. And this guy's about to hit me. I could eject there and survive it. Whereas the old seat, that isn't the case. And so with attacker jets, the habit patterns between everything starting up the jet for the attacker jet is a lot more complicated. As far as system management goes, um, but then you've got the Navy side with the newer seat that has 15 different connections that you have to connect um, because there's leg straps and all sorts of different little things, just different. So that's probably the main difference is the strapping into the seat between the TAC Air Jet and the Navy Jet, as well as all the systems that are in the TAC Air Jet um, are much more intensive as far as making sure they're all working and on and setting up the jet the way you want it and radios because there's two UHF and two VHF radios in the tech air jet. There's only two uh, UHF radios in the Navy jet. So it's just much easier management of uh, radios for the Navy, but avionics, a lot more complicated tech air um, seat, way less complicated for tech air avionics, way simplified in the Navy and seat way more complicating complicated uh, for the Navy. So it's kind of a weird combo of the two. And I have to kind of, when I get in the seat, I'm like, okay, what is my first step here? It has the same way that they strap into the seat, but two different seats. What seat am I in today? Oh yeah, I got to do the leg strap first. And I'm in the Navy seat. Um, and then once you kind of get into that groove, then it's, then it all kind of just goes naturally after that. Do you find that the switching back and forth keeps you sharp or, uh, that keeps you out of that complacent area or does it uh, like open the possibility for mistakes? Initially I, I felt like, like maybe I was making more mistakes just because I'd be so heavily involved in one, one jet flying for them and busy. And then even in the same day flying one flight for tactical air support and then doing the next flight with um, VFC 13 in the afternoon. Wow. So at that point, it was a little bit of an adjustment, but flying the airplane is basically the same. It still feels like and smells like an F5. So a lot of your other senses are, you know, basically the same once you kind of get into the groove of which aircraft you're flying. 
Um, so initially I thought I felt like I was making more mistakes. And then now I think I just kind of getting into more of a, a comfortable groove with the TAC air jet. Um, so it's less familiar and you're less nervous about it. You make less mistakes. And so uh, I, the transition between the two has been easier as well as the workload has been a little bit light on the TAC air side as far as what they're doing. So, um, so that has kind of eased up a little bit. So I've only really had a couple weeks where I was doing um, pack air flight in the morning, Navy flight in the afternoon type deal and having to worry about going, going back and forth. How long have you been with the Saints? Um, let's see. I think it was June of 2015, so uh, five years now. Okay. Did you request to, to go there or was it orders? Um, it's it, – it's always orders that, that send you where you have to go. Um, mm-hmm. They give you what's called a slate that could have any number of options on it. And you, you put your preference in and skippers of those squadrons. Uh, so your prior squadron will be like, hey, this is a good guy. Like they write up a, uh, basically an evaluation report. We call it a fitness report as an um, that says kind of, yep, you're, it's basically your track record as you've been in the, in the squadron. and They'll pass that along to uh, people that ask about you if they know that that you're on the slate to go somewhere. Um, and so there's kind of, I think there's a lot of backroom dealing as far as hey, is this guy cool? Is you know is he a good pilot? Like you know we're we gonna have any issues with him and his is like non-flying side of his life, that kind of stuff. So you put your preference in. There's a lot of backroom dealings, and then you find out later where they've where the Navy has decided you will go because regardless of those two things, it's it could just be that somebody else is like, well, BFC 13 hasn't gotten anybody in two years. We need to send them somebody. So sometimes <laughs> that happens. Um, or if, let's say, your wife is in Seattle or Whidbey or something, Whidbey Island, Washington, they may go, oh, well, we're going to give him co-location with his wife. So so he gets priority over somebody else that just wants to go there that may be single, doesn't have necessary reason to go there. So a lot of factors go into it. Um, I believe there were 15 different options on coming out of my fleet squadron where I could go and different jobs. Um, DFC cool. 13 wasn't at the top of my list, um, mainly because nobody really knows what what we do. You just know that they fly F5s, they're in Fallon or, uh, or in Key West, uh, the other F5 squadron, and you have limited interaction. You don't know anything about F5s. Um, you don't run into anybody that, that flew F5s and went back to the fleet, really, because once you go F5s, you kind of just stay in that world. You don't really go, you don't cross-pollinate back into the fleet, um, really, other than as people see you in Fallon to get get their pre-deployment workup stuff done, they may run into you again and be like, oh, hey, dude, what are you doing now? And I'm like, oh, I'm flying F5s. And like, oh, really, uh, what's that about? So that's the only kind of word of mouth you really get. You don't know what it's like <laughs> until you go there. And so even though it wasn't at the top of my list, um, it ended up being a blessing in disguise just because you don't, the jets are, are so basic that there's not a lot that can break. There's not a lot that's electronic on it. Um, so they, they're, in general, they're safe to fly. Um, they're very comfortable flying in Fallon because all our airspace is out east of Fallon. It's just mountains and desert. So you don't have to worry a whole lot about noise abatement like you do in San Diego um, or even Lemoore. There's a little bit of that transit time to the working areas it's close um so there's just a lot of benefits that nobody really knows about it's kind of a well-kept secret and then a lot of guys are 
airline pilots and FedEx uh, pilots because there were, it's half the squadron is made up of reservists. And so you get this whole behind the curtain background on, hey, this is life outside the Navy. Um, and you don't feel like you don't have options, which is kind of what the Navy likes to likes to do is kind of keep you in your bubble and be like, you need the Navy. This is this is all you know how to do. And <laughs> we're going to take care of you, quote unquote. So <laughs> kind of nice to to go to a place where there's a bunch of people with a bunch of backgrounds. They can have one foot in the Navy and the other foot in the civilian life and tell you kind of the goods and colors of both. So um, that's kind of how you find out. It, it was orders. And uh, while it has been difficult here and there, you know, you kind of go between man, I'm getting shot in the foot because I'm going to be flying F-5s. It's going to be really hard to fly F-18s again. Um, you lose some of your qualifications because you have to go re redo them, requalify in an F-5. Um, so you have to kind of redouble your efforts, and that's frustrating. But um, but overall, it's it's been a, been a pretty good thing, and it's kind of set me up nicely. I, I kind of feel like I'm a genius right now because the airline – most people go to the airlines when they become a reservist like I am now. I've been for the last year. Um, I didn't have enough flight time. The airlines, they want you to have 500, uh, hours of jet time as, as kind of a minimum. You can apply with less, but you're going to be in a different stack of people. That's, you know, somebody that's doing commercial flying at some kind of regional is going to have thousands of hours. And you're going to just gonna be a guy that's done. Uh, let's say, let's say I had 1300 hours in the Navy and 1400 landings because in the jet, you have typically have more landings than you have flight time um so that's really what you would think airlines would care about but however they rank it i i didn't have enough time uh that i thought it made sense to go do that nor did i really necessarily want to go be a bus driver um a lot of guys just do it because it's the you know you work 10 days out of the month and that's and you get paid as much as uh as you might in the navy or more substantially sometimes so i kind of had to make a decision there and couple of guys that I knew were starting up this uh, F5AT program in tactical air support and like, well, I already know how to fly F5s. Like maybe they need some young guys that do this because a lot of the contractors that do contract uh, adversary air are a lot of older dudes. They're like in their, look like they're in their late forties or fifties. And you're like, how much does this guy know about what he needs to do? Sure. Maybe do the combat back in the day or some of these guys, even like the F4 fan, you can believe that. And now they're flying red air in events where they have no idea. So the stigma is there that you're like, do I really want to go into this world where I'm going to be looked at as just some, some greasy contractor. But at the time I was like, I don't know if I'm going to have a job. Time I can make maybe I don't have enough flight time, maybe get a, a sure thing with the airlines. So let's see how this tactical air support thing does. And it hasn't been affected by uh, this COVID-19 nonsense. So, uh, I feel like a genius. The airlines are kind of struggling. <laughs> yeah, and what a solid side gig too. Really, you just step out of one jet and into another. That's, you know, just a slightly different variation of it. So there's not like a huge adjustment. It's not like you're flying an airline and then go back and have to get reacquainted with the speed and all that stuff. It's just step in and go. Yep, and I'm lucky enough that they're both basically in the same location, and I. I just moved to Reno a year and a half, um, maybe two years and change ago. And initially the job was out of Stead, which is just north of Reno. And so I'm like, man, my commute just got cut in a third. Uh, I was 20 minutes to work. Um, and then we moved all the jets to Fallon. And then my commute is back to the, what it was 
for the Navy for both jobs now. So luckily my girl, my girlfriend lives in Fallon. I, I met her in Reno and I was like, Hey, this movie, you know, um, you live in Reno. She's like, I don't, I live in Fallon. I'm like, okay, now, <laughs> now I'm going to have to drive back and forth for that. So now it kind of, I use her as like a, um, her house rather as like a forward operations space for lack of a better term uh when i know that i need to work a whole lot on top of the fact that i just i would rather be around her anyway so less in reno now and uh more in fallon both to, because of her and uh and because i have two jobs there now well going just speaking of fallon um did you spend much time there while you were um in the fleet were you familiar with fallon itself or was it just kind of um you know, here's the job. It's there. I'll make the best of it. Um, so the only time you ever really go to Fallon um, in the fleet is when you're about to go on deployment. So you'll go out there six months or so prior to you're expected to go on deployment with your ship. Um, you'll you'll go and do a bunch of air to surface stuff. So a bunch of dropping bombs and very limited interaction with um, kind of opposed bad guys or, or red air mm-hmm. um, initially for that first month. And VFC 13 actually runs runs that part of the pre-deployment cycle. It's called um, SFARP, or Strike Fighter Advanced Readiness Program. And we uh, we like build the presentations and uh, go, like presentation being this is where all the bad guys are going to be and this is what they're going to do to counter the good guys, practicing their tactics. And then uh, and then we'll we'll run the debrief and be the main bad guy that they ask questions of. Uh, on this big screen, kind of like you see in Top Gun, where they're they're watching the fight, more God's eye view, and kind of looks like a computer screen with plain eye guns flying around, and uh, and basically assessing how the good guys did as far as their tactics go, and then we're just there as a representative of the bad guys, just to go, okay, this is the information, assessment, how well they did or not. We don't really provide um, learning points, is is what we call them in the Navy. When they do something wrong, they'll ask us out of courtesy, "Hey, do you have any additional learning points to add?" By one, and then you'll have an opportunity to say something. And normally, you only say things that the bad guys did incorrectly or screwed up, because it's it's kind of like a, an accountability thing in the Navy, and especially in aviation, if you screw something up, mess it up, and uh, so that way everybody learns. And then there isn't really this like, "Hey, I can't trust the guy. He knows he's doing shit wrong. He doesn't want to talk about it." Pardon my French. I don't know if you guys bleep that stuff out. Um, no, it's totally <laughs> fine. In any case, uh, you only really see Fallon when you're going on, getting ready to go on deployment, and when you're in the training commands, you don't ever go to, to Fallon. You're only either in East for Jets, Virginia Beach, Virginia, or Lamore, California, and uh, you don't go up to Fallon really at all. You might potentially go up to Fallon if you do the the rag in Lamore, because they fly up here, do some. Uh, do some stuff actually with VFC 13 and then fly back. But I was in Virginia Beach over at VFA 106, so I didn't, didn't see that firsthand. And Top Guns were out of Fallon as well. Did Were you ever up there for that, or um, did you have any exposure with that prior to being deployed there? Um, no. So your first experience with Top Gun instructors, or not necessarily Top Gun instructors, but blue patch wearers, what they call them, guys that have gone through the Top Gun blue course uh, in an F-18 of some flavor, go back to uh, your lead squadron and they become training officers. And so they are um, generally a lieutenant, so an O3, 
and they're responsible for qualifying all the new junior officers. So guys that are typically lieutenant junior grade through um, through young lieutenants as they get their qualifications. Uh, and there's a, the syllabus is written by um, two different weapons schools. So there's an East Coast weapons school and a West Coast weapons school, and they're both based at the main fighter jet bases. And so your first interaction with anybody from Top Gun or Top Gun is, is your training officer because he's got a blue patch on his shoulder. And he's this guy that's it's kind of like your worst teacher in the bike. Um, hey, you've got English class and he's just a mean teacher and you you know he's going to tell you all the things you did wrong and he knows all the things that you should have done right and you're just terrible and you have to fix it all. And so you have a, a tendency to not like those people. Um, and basically their ability to convey that information in a good way also like your good high school teacher where you initially hated that teacher. You're like, man, this person sucks. This class sucks. And then they end up being your favorite teacher because um, you realize that they're just pushing you to be better. And they're, they're really about making you better. And so for the majority of those guys are generally that way. Um, but you will have a couple bad apples that are, that, that kind of power gets to their head and they're, it's kind of a know-it-all mentality instead of a, Hey, I'm trying to help you. Um, so that's that's your first initial kind of run in with something with Top Gun, and then once you go to Fallon, uh, you don't even interact with Top Gun instructors because they they only teach the Top Gun Blue and uh, Red course. And while they're not doing that, they're basically resources for the fleet. Call them either guys on deployment or about to deploy, or really at any time. If you have a question on any type of weapons tactic. You can call them or email them, and they should get back to you within 24 hours, kind of a deal, regardless of where in the world. So um, they have the ability to to do that, and even I think they probably have the ability to talk to the ship somehow, yeah, military DSN lines and all sorts of stuff. So, uh, so then in your fleet beyond your training officer, uh, when you go on pre-deployment stuff, you go to Fallon, or uh, or if you stay in Virginia Beach, there's where where those weapon schools are. There's guys that are, uh, They've gone through the blue course at Top Gun and Fallon, and then they go to e, either the East Coast or West Coast Weapons School if you can get a training spot. And those guys will be the guys that have to give check rides for all those junior officers that are trying to get their qualifications a couple levels. There's a, call it SWIFTY. It's SFWT is the abbreviation for it. Uh, but it's the syllabus that everybody has to go through as you're learning to fly the F-18 tactically. So those guys will run the check rides. So like you can do, your training officer can go, yes, you're good enough to pass that flight all the way up until the final one or two flights at the end. There's a blue patch where to, uh, to fly in one of your aircraft um, for that fleet squadron and then be a part of that event. And then he's the overall instructor for that. And we'll let people know, okay, yes, you are good enough to pass this level. You are capable of leading an F-18 and another F-18 wingman in this tactic um and then you go through the next level of stuff until you need to get in front of him again and he tells you whether you're good enough or not. so long-winded uh explanation but there's a lot of a lot of details and ends when you interact and then it's not until you get to uh vfc 13 um or you uh you leave your fleet squadron and you go hey i want to go to top gun uh, that you apply for a Top Gun um, student slot, or even if you're like, hey, I want to, I know I want to go through the Top Gun course, and you apply for that, and they go, the Navy goes, okay, we've given you that. Pending completion of the Blue course at Top Gun, you will become a 
Top Gun instructor in Fallon or a training officer or a weapons scouting. So you know where you're going to go once you complete the course. But in my case, I knew I was going to BFC 13. And then because everybody at BFC 13 goes through the adversary red course at Top Gun, you know that you're going to end up having to go through that. Um, and so that's kind of how you work yourself back through Top Gun and how they kind of keep the standardization and keeping everybody engaged with uh, with those guys and because they're at the tip writing all the tactics. Very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. How many different, uh, in VFC 13, how many different uh, types of, uh, or I guess how many different airframes have you gone up against? Um, not that many, because the Navy doesn't fly um, that many different types of aircraft. So mm-hmm. uh, you'll fly against legacy Hornet aircraft um, from uh, different, let's see, as guys go through the Top Gun course, VFC 13 will help with the Top Gun course. Uh, as just, we won't lead events, but we'll, the Top Gun instructor will lead the bad guys on those events, but we'll support. And so we'll end up flying against guys that are uh, either Marines that used to fly the Legacy Hornet, uh, which that isn't the case anymore. So we won't really see that ever again. But so older F 18s, um, Super Hornet, obviously, uh, Echo and Foxtrot, you'll see. Um, growlers, so the F-18 uh, or EA-18G as guys, uh, there's a growler weapon school which is, which is called Havoc, which is also um, on the opposite side of the same building that Top Gun is in. So you'll fly against those guys and help out at the course. It's basically like the Top Gun course except for growler guys. Um, also, when people come through for their growler, you'll fly against them. Uh, they like to do a lot of BFM with us, defensive BFM uh, basically, so where they're, where the F5 will start out behind them, and then they basically has to have to give us a problem that um, that we have to solve and try and stay behind them, and, and their goal is to is to prevent us from doing that. Um, we don't really fly against any Air Force guys very much. They'll come in for the top end course halfway through the top end course. They, um, it's a uh, grad one v one, so it's basically just like a BFM derby. And any they try to um, Top Gun instructors will call around to the different and all over all over the country and try and get people to show up for this. Um, and they could get random people too. I, I, they've had a MiG twenty one somebody that that makes twenty one fly. I think or Navy guy or Air Force guy. So there was some qualification there. It's not just a plane flying a twenty one that he bought. Um, we'll get F twenty twos that'll come through, F fifteens, F sixteens that are important. Um, we'll fly against F-16s. Uh, actually, we won't ever really fly against F-16s unless the Air Force comes, comes up to grad one. Um, basically, it's one of those types of things where it's only a couple of years and it's not guaranteed that you get paired up with any one of those guys. The Top Gun instructors beat this whole list. And I'm sure there's a lot of wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. Like, you don't want to fly the F-2. She let me fly it against this guy or whatever. Or I know this guy in this Air Force squadron can like happens to so kind of random as as far as what you get to fly against in DB sets. That's pretty cool. I think your uh, your mic was cutting in and out. I was having a little trouble hearing that, but I think I got most of it. Um, have you had uh, any super memorable one v ones? Not really. I, I guess I flew against an F fifteen or F fifteens in uh, Florida. A long time ago when I was in my fleet squadron, 
Uh, so I was in a super hornet there. Um, that was kind of interesting. I know a lot of guys that have flown with F-22s they are like, it's just, it's crazy flying against that thing. You're like, anything <laughs> else that you would fly against, you'd be like, oh, I expect him to do this. And then you look at an F-22, do it, and you're, or do something you've never seen happen before. And you're like, okay, I guess my airplane sucks. I'll just try to keep fighting here and try to stay positive. But, um, <laughs> but I haven't really had any crazy memorable experiences, which is probably a good thing because that means that probably nothing scary has happened here. Um, right. <laughs> and that's that's not to say that I haven't had some scary close calls, which I because I have, but um but probably no more than anyone else has really had scary close calls and haven't got to really fight anything crazy. I know um basically around the southern tip of South America, they weren't supposed to go on a, a west pack or something to the Middle East, so they um so the boat needed to do something and so they went around the southern edge of South America and they fought against some Chilean MiG-29s or at least MiG-29s from somewhere down there when they were flying off the ship. So that would be really cool. I've really got to find against, against anything Russian. That would have been pretty neat. Yeah, that's that's wild. Now, as far as like, air, you know, your typical air to air engagement, you know, dogfight, how many turns, how, lo- how long does a, a fight last on average? Um, Probably, let's see, probably a couple minutes okay. uh, at most, because at some point you basically start at like, a, call it a, a mid-teens in altitude and call it like 350 knots, maybe 400 knots, something like that. And most of the time when you're you're not doing a specific training mission, it's you start at, at kind of a neutral situation where no, neither guy has an advantage other than inherently in their jet or their their knowledge. And so you'll, you'll kind of end up turning with each other, whether you, you know, your first maneuver is to go nose high or nose low, doesn't matter. Eventually you run out of air, enough airspeed that you can't keep going up unless you're an F-22 or maybe a, a light loaded F-15 or something or, or an F-16 where you keep going up a couple times. Mainly Navy jets, you can only go up once before, before you can't go up again. Like you couldn't go make a vertical maneuver and then kind of level off and then do another vertical maneuver. Like that would, would probably be difficult for a navy jet to do so inevitably you end up down at the uh the hard deck as we call it which effectively is is a fictitious line above the ground that's about five or six thousand feet above the the actual ground to allow in case you were to get into some kind of out of control fight you'd be able to have enough air or uh, altitude in order to execute your your ocf procedures and recover the aircraft basically without ejecting so you end up at the hard deck doing things, trying to fight, or you know somebody has an advantage somewhere, and and either shoots you and either says uh, continue rather than ending the fight there, or um, or mm-hmm. nobody has a shot and you're just kind of running around at, at the hard deck, basically chasing each other in a circle, which seems really stupid, but it's kind of like almost a man off situation where you're like, okay, this hurts. How long before somebody just calls uncle and then? does something stupid on purpose because they're just tired of hurting. <laughs> All those G's sure are hard 16. work. Yeah, it's, it's really only a couple minutes long, if that, each time. How many rounds will you guys generally go in a in a flight? Say, if you have a flight for an hour, how much of that is actually, you know, doing the turning? Um, Probably maybe 20 minutes, because you have, call it 10-minute transit time. 
at a, at a minimum, maybe five to 10 minute transit time on both sides. So there's 20 minutes there, 20 minutes of actually turning and then call it 15 to 20 minutes of actually um, probably less. We usually, when you're doing a dedicated BFM flight, they're usually anywhere between 30 and 45 minutes long. So okay. it could be about 15 minutes of only, of actually really turning the aircraft fighting. And the rest of it is, hey, we're getting set back up and climbing back up to um, an, an appropriate start altitude. And then making sure that we're like centered within the little airspace. That, um, and then the 10 minutes of transit time on either side. So it's it does get hard to get that much training done. So you have to be good at maintaining sight of the other aircraft if you don't have other systems like you do in the F-18 uh, to look at, to know where you are in relation to your flight leader. And to direct him to get back into an appropriate formation to start the next set or fight. So you get good at getting yelled at for not doing that. So you, you do get good physically at, at doing that, maintaining formation and knowing where you need to be to get through this quickly because you just don't want to keep incompleting flights. So it's almost by necessity because you don't have a lot of fuel and because it, it's a lot of afterburner. Um, so you just burn through it. And because you have transit time on either side, and then you've also got a minimum amount of gas that you're allowed to to land with based on your squadron's uh standard operating procedures or sop so you still have to be aware of that so kind of bump all those things back and then you you really only have a finite amount of training time that's not much in a good gotcha and kind of going back like as far as like my love of the f5 and i guess like of aggressors in general and then it's kind of a you know the paint jobs are you know, pretty popular, like the various schemes. Do you know much about the history of the schemes? Um, and do you have a favorite yourself? Or is there a particular jet that's better taken care of the others that um, that you like to fl basically fly more than the you others? Know, I'm not a real big aviation history buff, so that's kind of one of my, my weaknesses. I know a lot of people that follow aviation are big into, um, like I growing up, I could go, oh, that's this type of aircraft. Um, or that, you know, this one's called this and it's in generally, in general, it's perform performance is this, but, um, I don't know the, the background behind all the paint schemes. I know a couple of the paint schemes are Iranian in background, a couple, um, a couple of them are Russian in background and a couple are, uh, Top Gun, the original movie in background. So, so I think I prefer the, um, single seat. Our, our our side number thirteen is is painted black, the uh, quote unquote MiG twenty eight in the original Top Gun. <laughs> Even though the, the the quote unquote MiG twenty eight was a two seater, we we have a two seater that's painted black as well, like that. Um, it's just less fun to fly because there's there's AOA limitations that you don't want to you don't want to exceed, and um, just other little quirky things with that that aircraft because it's kind of a Frankenstein build of an aircraft, whereas the single seat one flies a lot differently. Um, for the most part, as far as dogfighting goes, but I think just it's just a cool, different thing. Like you don't see an all-black painted aircraft anywhere in the world, really, that I know of. Um, I'm sure there's probably something that someone would be like, "Oh, yeah, there's this one out there." But in any case, <laughs> yeah. the ones that the there's always somebody that does with, that. <laughs> yeah, the ones that I see and deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, I think I think that one's pretty. Does look pretty sinister. Yeah, that is the sinister aircraft. But there isn't any Spiky. tactical advantage to it because it's so easy to see, being that it's black and shiny. So um, <laughs> there is no tactical benefit. It just just supposed to just looks cool. <laughs> Maybe a little, um, you know, 
a little buck fever when somebody sees it for the first time flying. Like, oh man, there's a Top Gun jet. That may be the case for people in the rag that go that see us, or you know, you go to emerge after a beyond visual range type thing, and then and then you have to identify the aircraft that you saw at the merge in the debrief because there's a litany of things that you talk about. And so that would be would be kind of cool. If you weren't expecting it, it might be something cool, that, especially if you see it. Oh shit, that's like the aircraft from Top Gun. Has <laughs> anyone ever called it a MiG twenty eight in the debrief? No, it's everyone's pretty easy. you're either worried that your instructor is gonna yell at you or you're too busy pouring if you're a student <laughs> beating the debrief and you're trying to do a good job, there's not really a lot of room for for joking around really. Like in mm-hmm. my in my capacity at BSC thirteen, there's like a little bit of room because we either see it the same guys every day or definitely not in the first day maybe not the first week of somebody being up there for training but like maybe week two you could kind of interject something funny you know inside pilot joke nerdery or something but <laughs> but not really people don't really uh do that not at least not in a formal setting that's understandable is there like a a top gun swear jar if somebody quotes the movie um they have to pay a tax so that that is the thing at while you're at Top Gun, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. As an instructor, I've, I have a friend. He's an instructor um, <laughs> that used to fly F fives. He's actually coming back to fly F fives once he's done with his instructor tour at Top Gun. Um, I could ask him and probably get an answer to that. But um, in general, I know that they have a fine thing for that. I, it's actually on the on the wall. It's like if you make a Top Gun, dollars or something. It all goes towards like a party at the end of the class um, for pizza and beer and, and that kind of thing, along with like. Hey, you dropped ordinance without a clearance, uh, you know, without a cleared hot, that kind of thing. So, like, there, there's things that you really don't want to do in fighter aviation that are all fined, and Top Gun quotes are up there. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, when you're up in the cockpit, uh, how annoying is it to have a camera with you? So, uh, so I don't ever bring my adult camera or my my Sony cameras. I just always carry my cell phone and most everybody carries a cell phone and uh they keep it in a pocket or a g-suit pocket or something so to to take iphone photos it's not very hard because i can kind of hold the phone granted my my aircraft is unclassified like if you're if you're doing stuff in an f-18 you have to make sure certain screens aren't up um you always have to talk to your skipper and be like hey is it cool that i do this today and either you have to ask him every time on that skipper Maybe he gives you a blanket, like, yeah, dude, it's fine. Just don't be stupid um, type scenario. So so I can hold the phone and basically take a photo that I need to on the left side, okay, because I can hold the phone in my left hand. And then if I need to use the throttle or talk to somebody, I'm the throttle on my left hand. I can kind of straddle the phone in between my hand and still manipulate stuff uh, with my thumb and pinky. So I can still do it <laughs> safely. Um, if it's anything to my right side, um, I basically either have to swap hands and, and or, or lean across to the right with my cell phone to try and take a photo or video or whatever um, and fly with my knees um, and just set the throttle wherever it's at for that second. But for, for actual taking a camera with me, I've only ever done that in the backseat. It's just one, I, cameras aren't, aren't tested to be in like a high G environment. So mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't necessarily want to test the fact that the glass elements inside the lens are uh, are rated for 5Gs or something. You know, like they're stabilized within the lens a lot of the time. I just don't know. 
confidence and so i worry about that but i have sat in the back in basically basic um basic like fairy flights doing things or uh or low levels and and gotten photos for other guys um with my camera but there's not a lot of room so I, i've only had maybe a um the longest lens would have been either a 24 to 70 or a 70 to 200 and with the 70 to 200 for sure you're you're only really turning in the camera in front of you and looking around to the right at the digital screen to see what you're pointing at using autofocus because mm-hmm. there's there's not enough room to manipulate a long lens in there and uh and and still be able to do it properly with, with the way the camera sits and maybe because I'm tall as well so that probably has a function there um, iPhone's way easier <laughs> well, the quality is great. I mean, especially, you know, for anybody that follows your page, you know, you know that, you know, the shots that you get are amazing. Um, you know, I'm not sure if it's, you know, obviously it's the, the gear um, and where you're at. But, uh, yeah, the shots are amazing. I mean, they, they just they look well composed. Thank you. I'm um, So thanks for saying that. It's it's just uh, I guess either you, you get trained to do it. you. you work with somebody a photographer i have a friend who um just recently not recently i guess within the last four years or so he's a a british national that came and hung out with us for a while and um took some photos in the back seat he kind of got friends with one of our with our skipper and we were kind of doing a watch buy with bremont uh which is a watch company in in england if you're familiar Mm -hmm. Um, but in any case he kind of that photographer was friends with Bremont and Bremont knew they were selling a watch to us. And so that he kind of got in contact with our skipper and was like, Hey, I, I do a lot of photography. I really like aviation. Um, would you guys care if I came and took some photos of you guys? And, you know, obviously I would do some family stuff or whatever you guys need to. And we kind of had this working relationship and then I kind of became friends with him. And so he kind of showed me some things and I kind of feel like with photography, you either, you take photos of what you like to look at and either other people like them or they don't. And so mm-hmm. either, either you have, you take photos of people that resonate with people and they, they like it or, uh, or maybe you don't care about that and you just like taking photos. So in any case, the way that I take photos or what I take photos of is, is uh, worth looking at and talking about. What are some of your favorite things to shoot outside aviation? Um, I used to do a lot of hiking. And I would bring my camera with me doing that. And uh, I used to think that's what I like to do, but I don't think so. I think um, taking pictures of people is more fun. I think people tend to empathize or tend to, uh, I don't know, it's like maybe it's human nature it's or it's biology or evolution or whatever. But the way that people can read faces and see see somebody else and understand feelings and emotions based on subtle cues in someone's face makes it more interesting and difficult to take pictures of people, I think, which is why I think I like taking pictures of, um, of dudes walking on the flight line or in their airplane. Cause they're, you've got this like focus. If they see me, then obviously that, that all goes out the window and they smile or they get embarrassed or they laugh or something happens that it's <laughs> right. not spontaneous. But if you can take a photo before they realize that you're there or in a situation when they're not paying attention to you, I feel like that's kind of fun and difficult. Um, and more interesting than just, hey, here's another piece of metal that looks like a, a fighter jet doing what we've seen everybody else take pictures of jets doing. So I think people uh, is what I like to 
take photos of. That's cool. You're definitely right about that. Are there any shots that you're after that you haven't yet achieved, either in the jet or otherwise? Um, not that I can think of. I've I've actually gotten really bored walking around our flight line, just trying to I walk all <laughs> over the aircraft and sit in the cockpit and climb on the back of the spine of the F5 and try and sit and get different angles of things all the time. And I kind of just run out of ideas because the uh, the weather in Nevada, particularly in this area, is, is generally the same all the time. It's like really nice weather almost all the time. You don't get a lot of clouds. And so the lighting is always kind of harsh if there are clouds or uh, you don't have like crazy storms all the time. So there's not a lot of opportunity where I'm also at work because I'm a reservist half the time. So I'm only in, at the Navy side half the time. Um, that the, the opportunities are limited. So I just try to bring my camera when I can and, and try to make the, the most opportunities. But I've brought my GoPro along a bunch of times to fly with it and try to get different angles in the cockpit and see what's most interesting. And it ends up just being really difficult to see anything else other than a pilot just flying in the cockpit. Like even if I was to dogfight with somebody, with a, you really don't get close enough, especially because most of the lenses are wide angle. Yeah. That you can't see the other aircraft very well, so it just doesn't look very interesting. It's like, man, it looks like he's a mile away from that guy, when in reality you're like 500 feet. So it's hard to get the, the perspective, I guess. Um, Scale, maybe. Yeah. yeah. But that's not that's not to say that I haven't tried. And, um, I'm sure there's something. I, I know for a fact there's probably something that I haven't thought of before to do, but um, I haven't thought of it yet. I haven't thought of what I haven't thought of yet. <laughs> <laughs> It'll happen. <laughs> yeah, you'll get there. <laughs> Do you plan on staying on uh, aviation? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, it just kind of makes sense. It'd be, I was thinking about that. And I was like, well, if this tactical air support thing isn't a career job, I don't, I don't know if it is or it isn't yet. The reserve side of the Navy is, is a finite amount of time. And then at some point, I'm going to be in my mid-40s. I'm 35 right now. So I'll be in my mid-40s trying to figure out what to do with my life. And it would be kind of silly to uh to to just throw away all the aviation knowledge and experience and and not do something with that so i kind of feel like it'll still be involved somewhere like if if it was up to me if i could make a similar amount of money doing photography and not make it only a job like actually enjoy doing that getting paid for it then that would be really awesome um i just don't see that being a feasibility based on uh the fact that everyone's a photographer, like, so not everyone's a pilot, but everyone's a photographer. And it's, there's, like I said early on, it's like the difference between an iPhone and a Sony a7R4 with a really nice lens on it is pretty close, especially when you're viewing it on Instagram. It's, it's on your computer screen, a giant computer screen, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's definitely a nice camera, iPhone, but maybe not. So I think, I think it, what lies ahead will probably be some, some lines of commercial airlines or FedEx or something, uh, unless I can stave off doing that and figure out another way to to maintain a similar quality of life and do photography on the side or something. Cool, man. Well, I think we've bumped up against the back of this window here. Thank you very much for joining us, dude. This has been a great chat, and Mike, you too. Thank you, dude. No problem. Yeah, dude. Always a good time. Uh, be sure to check out Brad Holeski. Not Holsky, Holesky, at Short Stories of a Shutter. 
uh, and Shutter Stories portfolio for the non-aviation stuff. Um, Once again, really appreciate it, man. Thank you. That was really great. No problem. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. We'll see you next time again on the uh, Full Disc Aviation podcast. Stay well, guys. Full Disc Aviation is a group of aviation photographers and enthusiasts that are passionate about sharing our love for aviation with you. Visit our website at fulldiscaviation.com for exclusive interviews, stories, and photo galleries, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for frequent content updates. Also, please leave us a review in iTunes. We always welcome any feedback that can improve the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. And don't forget, Full Disc begins at 160th.